Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and this week we're looking at Twitter, the online safety bill, and the limits of free speech. Hello, my name is Emily McTernan, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. Two current news stories raise important questions about online speech and how it should be regulated. First, Twitter has been taken over by Elon Musk, who has slashed staff numbers, allowed previously barred users, not least Donald Trump, to return, and pledged a new era of free speech and less regulation. Some claim that as a result, Twitter has seen a deluge of disinformation and hate speech. In the UK, meanwhile, the online safety bill is making its way through Parliament. This was originally intended in part to protect democracy against disinformation. But these provisions have now largely been stripped out, weakening the protections it will provide. What should we think about these developments? Is it a good thing that Twitter is promoting free speech? Or would more content regulation be better? How much of a problem is disinformation for society and democracy? Might there be a moral duty for social media platforms or for the state to tackle disinformation and otherwise harmful speech? There is no better person to explore such questions with than Dr. Jeffrey Howard, Associate Professor in Political Theory here in the UCL Department of Political Science. Jeff is an expert in free speech and on the ethics of online speech. He currently holds a UKRI Future Leaders Fellowship, leading a cross-disciplinary research project on the ethics of content moderation on social media and the future of free speech online. And I'm delighted that Jeff joins me now. Jeff, welcome back to UCL Uncovering Politics. Thanks so much, Emily. Great to be with you. Let's start by digging a little bit further into two real-world developments that have prompted our discussion today, focusing on Twitter first. Listeners will be familiar, of course, with the general story of Elon Musk's takeover, but what are the features of this saga that you want us to think about? Well, we know that Twitter was taken over by Musk uh, in late October of this past year, got it for a handy price of $44 billion. And the first thing he did was fire the top three executives at Twitter. And then he started doing a lot of layoffs, laying off about half of the company's nearly 8,000 employees. And a lot of the layoffs uh, arose in the trust and safety space. So these are the people who are working on the problems of content moderation. And by content moderation, we mean the systems that platforms have in place that decide what kind of speech is allowed on the platform, what kind of speech isn't allowed on the platform, and then deploy a combination of both human teams and artificial intelligence um, systems to take down the speech that isn't allowed on the network. And Elon Musk had been saying for a long time that he thinks Twitter restricts too much speech. He very much sees Twitter as the public square. And so it's not especially surprising then that when Twitter, when Elon Musk took over Twitter, one of the first things he did was really try to, to open up the network. And, and as part of that, he brought back a lot of accounts that had been previously banned. He brought back um, Donald Trump onto Twitter. He brought back accounts that had been suspended for violating policies on hate speech uh, and misinformation. Uh, and so it's no surprise, especially that we've seen various reporting that hate speech, misinformation uh, are on the rise on that network. 
Great. And how's the user experience been affected? Are there complaints from the users that they're seeing a lot more of this material or are people actually happy to see free speech returned to the public square as it is online? Well, I think it depends who you ask. There certainly are a lot of allegations, a lot of anecdotes about increased rates of abuse, harassment on the platform. Um, on the other hand, mostly in the American context, those on the political right are seeing this as a, as a kind of triumph against what they see as a, a wave of efforts by big tech um, to suppress conservative speech that they that that company executives dislike. I, I don't agree with that characterization of the situation. Um, I think given that Musk himself holds different views about what the limits of free speech are than the previous team at Twitter, it would be very surprising if we didn't see an upsurge in the kinds of speech um, that had previously been, been restricted. Um, certainly one of the things to note in this context uh, is that advertisers themselves have found Trump's uh, Elon's developments in the space to be deeply unpopular. And so a lot of advertisers have fled the platform, putting Twitter in really difficult um, financial shape. And so that reminds us that as interesting as these lofty academic discussions are about the limits of free speech are, Twitter is fundamentally a business. And so there is always a business case for engaging in this kind of content moderation as well, which is that users don't want these networks to be a kind of swamp saturated in um, foreign troll bots and misinformation and hate. And it certainly hasn't become that horrible under, under Musk, but there has been a flood of advertisers. And by the way, an interesting um, exodus of people to alternative platforms like, like Mastodon, um, which are a very different kind of product. And so I think it's, it's a really, really interesting development. And I think what people are watching now is, will Twitter actually survive financially? And you'll need to ask our friends in, in the UCL Management School for the answer to that question. But it's not looking great financially, that's for sure. And Elon's views about free speech seem to be at the core of why that is. Fascinating. And we're going to drill down into those questions about free speech and disinformation and how to think about the space there in moral terms soon. But first of all, let's just get the online safety bill onto our table as well. Could you tell us a bit about the ways in which this bill might change the online environment um, and whether it, you think it will do enough to handle disinformation that we find on these platforms? Absolutely. So the online safety bill, um, previously known as the online harms bill, uh, has been under discussion in this country for the past several years. Under the new government, it's been picked up again after it was put on ice for a while, and there have been a, a series of recent changes to modify the bill, but now it really looks like it's going to come to fruition. It's um, being worked through the House of Lords uh, at present, and I wouldn't be surprised if we saw the bill uh, enacted into law later this spring. And the bill is a quite radical uh, piece of legislation in that it does subject the social media companies to all sorts of accountability. So the online safety bill is gonna undertake a, a number of different measures. One of the things it's going to do is make platforms accountable for moving varieties of speech that are currently illegal. One of the ways it's going to do this is by expanding the scope of what kind of speech is illegal. So part of the revised version of the online safety bill is gonna include provisions for criminalizing speech that directly encourages self-harm. Um, certain forms of false communications will also be criminalized under the bill. The bill is also going to hold platforms accountable for keeping children safe. And so there'll be a, a series of stringent measures, potentially stringent measures put in place uh, to ensure that um, there's age gating systems so that children aren't accessing uh, more mature content that they're not allowed to see, um, that they're not supposed to see under the platform rules. Um, and further, the bill is going to ensure that platforms are actually held accountable for enforcing um, 
their own terms of service, the, the policies that they claim to have. And so I think these measures are, are pretty radical in that they're going to be the first time, in this country anyway, that these platforms have been subjected to, to serious accountability in terms of their content moderation systems. So in the bill, what, what kinds of false communications are going to be banned? Right. So there's a new offense uh, called the false communications offense. And the basic thought of the offense is that a person commits the offense um, if they, they send a message and the message conveys information that the person knows to be false and that at the time of sending it, the person intended the message or the information in, in it to cause non-trivial psychological or physical harm uh, to a likely audience. Okay. Um, and finally, the person has no reasonable excuse for, for sending the message. So that's the, that's the new provision. And what's interesting here is that on the previous version, in the previous version of the bill, there were um, requirements that the big platforms take action against content that was deemed uh, so-called legal but harmful, sometimes referred to as lawful but awful content. And the basic idea there is that some speech on social media becomes, isn't worthy of being criminalized in individual cases, but that when the platforms aggregate and amplify the speech um, and flood it into particular echo chambers, then it becomes truly dangerous. And so we don't want to criminalize individual instances of the speech, but we do want to hold the platforms accountable for their role in amplifying and aggregating that speech. So on the previous version of the bill, platforms had a special, the big platforms anyway, had a special set of duties to implement risk assessments for the kind of speech that, while legal, uh, became harmful. Um, when spreading across the platform. And one of the new developments in response to free speech concerns by the current conservative government um, under Rishi Sunak has been to eliminate that provision of the bill. So there are no longer these risk assessments that are required for speech that is legal but harmful. One way could to you, kind of mitigate, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, Jeff. Um, could you give us an example of this lawful but awful speech? What kind of thing do people have in mind? Was it COVID denial, was it? So speech, so COVID denial absolutely falls into that bucket. Outside the misinformation context, you might think about speech that glorifies or promotes self-harm. So you might think of speech that casts anorexia or bulimia in a positive light. And so without these provisions, the platforms just aren't going to be held accountable for this kind of speech, ex except for the, the way in which Except, except if the speech is already banned by the platform, then it's going to be held to its promises. But of course, the platform could, could just change its mind overnight and decide, as, as we've seen at Twitter, to, to roll back how stringent some of these categories are. Now, one of the interesting things about the move to take away these so-called adult safety duties to do risk assessments on legal but harmful content is that they've introduced these new, new offenses and they basically rejected the original thought, which was, well, some stuff shouldn't be criminalized in individual cases because it's only genuinely harmful when aggregated and amplified across the platform. And so you really just want to hold the platform accountable. And now they're saying, no, 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 let's criminalize it in the individual cases, at least in some of these instances. And so here's, here's one of these instances um, with, where, where we've been talking about speech that um, where we've been talking about speech that conveys false information with some intent um, to cause non-trivial psychological or, or physical harm. There are new fences regarding explicitly encouraging self-harm that also fall into this general category. And one of the things to say about this is, you know, I don't think it's, it's a manifestly crazy offense. I, I don't think it's fundamentally unjust to have a new offense like this on the statute books, but it is instructive that it doesn't go after the kind of systemic harms that the bill tried to deal with at the outset.
Interesting. That's an interesting set of developments. Thank you, Jeff, for that description. I wonder if we can get a bit deeper into these developments by thinking about some of the political philosophy and ethics behind it, which, of course, it's wonderful to have you here as our expert for that. I wonder if you could start by helping us clarify these definitions a little bit. So what is we've, we've talked a little bit about disinformation and misinformation. Could you tell us about the difference between those two? Absolutely. So generally in the literature and among policy experts in this space, people distinguish between disinformation, which is defined as the deliberate circulation of falsehoods, where the author knows that the content is false. And so there seems to be some intention to deceive, to dupe audiences um, into believing that the content is true. Um, from misinformation where the author isn't necessarily aware that the content is false. So someone who innocently or someone who um, honestly circulates a falsehood about COVID vaccines not working, believing that it is true, that's an example of misinformation, but a nefarious actor who peddles the exact same content with either the aim of deceiving the audience or at least confusing the audience, perhaps even with the aim of, of bringing harm um, upon the audience, that would be considered a case of, of disinformation. And what's interesting is that there's a lot of philosophical literature on lying and the, the wrongness of lying. And depending how you exactly cash out the definition of disinformation, it just looks like a, a form of lying. And a lot of people think that lying is at least prima facie unprotected under a, a free speech principle. You might think that what we value about free communication is people honestly sharing what they think to one another and that lying is somehow incompatible with that purpose. Shauna Schifrin has convincingly, to my mind, defended that claim in, in her work. Where it gets really tricky, though, in the free speech page is misinformation, because we're talking about empirical falsehoods um, that are circulated by people who think that they're genuinely true. Interesting. So you're saying that, in fact, this, this distinction between misinformation and disinformation is incredibly important because only disinformation falls outside the realm of potentially protected free speech. So if it's, if it's deliberately wrong, then free speech shouldn't protect it at all. That, that so seems slightly controversial to me. I mean, you might say, shouldn't we be protecting the person who deliberately plays devil's advocate, who wants to be in the debate and just open it up to other spaces that they don't really believe in these views, but they think it's really important these views get on the table. Do we really want to say that's not protected under free speech? So I think you have a, a really good point, which is that it would be completely implausible to say that communicating falsehoods as such lacks free speech value. And the real insight here, I think, and this cuts across disinformation and misinformation, is that the history of scientific inquiry, public conversation of all kinds, is a history of people constantly making mistakes <laughs> about what is true and what is false. Mm -hmm. And so we all have a fundamental interest in being part of an ongoing cooperative inquiry, social conversation, depending, lots of ways to describe it, in which we are working together to decide what is true and what is false. So to say that at the outset, we're going to presuppose that we've figured it all out and we're going to make a list of all the true stuff and a list of all the bad stuff and say we're going to ban the list of all the false stuff, that's not going to be compatible with this vision of free speech as an ongoing cooperative inquiry. So if there is a duty to refrain from communicating these kinds of falsehoods, I think it's going to be a, a, a very specific duty that refers to only a, a subset of these falsehoods. So in my work, I, I think about what I call dangerous misinformation. And here I'm thinking about clear empirical falsehoods whose communication poses a, a serious and foreseeable risk of causing harm, okay? And by talking about clear empirical falsehoods, I'm trying to narrow our uh, understanding 
to the subset of falsehoods where we have a really, really high confidence that the content is false. And further, we have a really, really high confidence that the, the content in virtue of its falsehood um, creates a real danger to others, either inspiring people to harm themselves or inspiring people to, to harm others. And so I'm happy to give some, some examples in that space. So if you look, yeah. about, if you look at um, horrific episodes of, of ethnic cleansing and civil conflict in recent years. There's been a lot of talk about incitement and hate speech in that space. But often the most pernicious language comes in the form of misinformation, falsehoods about the groups in question. So if you think about the conflict in Myanmar, claims that the Rohingya themselves perpetrated heinous crimes that of course they didn't perpetrate were absolutely central to the propaganda mobilizing violence against them. Against them. And I, I view this as a kind of misinformation or disinformation that we might call threat fabrication, where a threat that doesn't actually exist is, is concocted up, either malevolently, and we have reason to believe in that case that members of the Myanmar military were genuinely engaging in disinformation, um, or um, by those who negligently pass it on. So in that case, it's misinformation, people who are gullibly duped into thinking it's true, but it's really not. But of course, it doesn't need to be a matter of threat fabrication. There are also cases in which this misinformation takes the form of what I call threat denial. So if you think of cases where they say, well, climate change isn't really happening, or if it is happening, there's nothing we can do about it, or it's happening, but it's not so bad. These are all versions of the thought that um, climate change doesn't actually constitute um, a serious threat that is capable of being averted. And I think threat fabrication and threat denial are two of the most important forms of, of misinformation. Now, I think clearly we have a duty to refrain from actively lying about those kinds of threats. I think that's pretty easy to justify. Um, but I think even in the case of misinformation, where we think that it's genuinely true, um, we have a moral responsibility not to take action at, not to communicate it. Now, that's not going to persuade us, right, because we think it's true, but it is relevant to what the platforms are thinking about in terms of what kind of speech it's acceptable for them to stop. Great. And what about the anti-vaccination people? So people who say, don't take your COVID jab, you know, it has all of these serious health risks and COVID is not so serious anyway. Does that count as the kind of threat denial that you're interested in or is that not quite fitting? And if not, why not? Well, I guess it depends on the, I, I think different kinds of vaccine denial might fall into either bucket. So the, the view that says that these vaccines are enormously dangerous, that they pose a fundamental risk to you and your children, that would be a kind of threat fabrication. Um, and it, it's, it's tricky, right? Because you could imagine um, someday it coming along that there was a vaccine that was genuinely dangerous, right? Now you would hope that these dangers would have been caught in testing, but there will potentially be be hard cases. Now, I think in COVID, it wasn't an especially hard case at all. There was a huge amount of uh, confidence among the relevant experts that these vaccines didn't pose a pose a danger. And so therefore, I think the platforms certainly are obligated to act against that kind of act against that kind of misinformation. Um, but of course, judgments are fallible and you could imagine them making mistakes in the future based on different kinds of cases. But I don't think this is that would be one of those cases. Great. That's very interesting, Jeff. Thank you very much for that. I mean, I do wonder slightly whether you're underestimating the strength of that sceptical challenge you offered us earlier, where you noted, of course, the scientific facts may not turn out to be correct. So even things we think we have very clear evidence of, sometimes it turns out our scientists were wrong about that. Yeah, that's um, right. And I think this helps explain... The BSE crisis kind of playing out now, right? So back then, there were all these MPs and scientists confidently saying, no, it's absolutely fine to eat British beef. And you might imagine a social media platform removing any suggestions to the contrary, yeah. and then the facts on the ground change. So I wonder, 
I wonder if we have to just hope that this skeptical challenge doesn't go that deep, that we can rely on what seem like clear evidence to distinguish amongst misinformation and appropriate counter views. Are you optimistic that we can do this? So one thing to keep in mind is that it's, of course, always possible to make mistakes in this context. But I think we're used to thinking about free speech concerns in the context of the criminal law and where is it permissible for the state to criminalize speech. And I do think that there is something lower stakes about thinking about free speech concerns in the content moderation space. It's not zero stakes, but it's lower stakes because we're not talking about incarcerating people for holding the wrong views about vaccines. We're talking about trying to protect other people from the dangers that based on our current evidence, we are justified in believing that speech poses to others. Now, of course, we might make mistakes and we might have to apologize later if it turns out we've made those mistakes. Um, and of course, it's important to try not to make mistakes and that's why we have to have a really, really high level of confidence before we act against the speech in question. But I think having your post removed is a far cry from being incarcerated. Um, having fewer people see your speech than otherwise would or having to communicate it to them through other offline venues is a cost that is imposed on you to be sure, but it's not nearly as great a cost as in these other contexts. So I think the kind of cost benefit analysis we do need to do to justify speech restrictions just takes on a different form in this kind of in this kind of context. That's really helpful. Let's turn to think about the moral duty to tackle this disinformation or misinformation. So on who do you think that falls? Is it is it falling on the social media platform? Is it the responsibility of the state to ensure there's the right kind of regulation? What's, what's your view? Or is it a moral duty of the individual not to spread disinformation or misinformation? So I think that the, the individual does have a, a moral duty not to spread this kind of, and let's just say misinformation now is the kind of master category that includes both knowing circulation, so disinformation, but also other forms of, of, uh, of ca other cases in which the speaker believes that the falsehood she's communicating is in fact true. So I think that across these cases of, of dangerous, dangerous misinformation, speakers do have a, a moral duty to refrain from communicating that speech. But I also think that um, these kinds of digital intermediaries like the big platforms also have a responsibility to limit that speech. And I think, think that that responsibility is grounded in a, in a few underlying duties. And the first most obvious duty is that these platforms are just in the right place at the right time with the right capacity to protect people from the danger that this kind of speech poses. So if you go back to the case of lies about the Rohingya that spread during the, the campaign of ethnic cleansing against them in Myanmar, Facebook allegedly did very little to stop the spread of that misinformation. And you might ask, well, well, why was that wrong? And I think one obvious reason why it was wrong is that they could have done it and they had the systems that they could have put in place to do that. And it would have been easy for them to try to help rescue the Rohingya from the dangers that that speech led, and they chose not to. And so there's just a fundamental rescue or defense duty that all of us have as agents, whether we're individual agents or corporations like companies. Um, and I think that is a duty that speaks in favor of some level of minimal, at least content moderation to try to get the worst of the worst speech off, off the platform that poses a danger to others. But I think above and beyond that duty, there are, there are some other responsibilities too. So this kind of rescue duty gives you an obligation to kind of look out for obviously wrongful speech on your platform, do something about it. it when you're made aware of it, it doesn't necessarily ground an obligation to actively police your platform for the duty. And so I think you're going to need something more, a more stringent duty to explain that 
more demanding responsibility. And here, the way I think of it is as a duty not to be complicit in the wrongful speech of the, the, the actual people doing the misinforming or the disinforming. So my thought is that platforms have a responsibility to reduce the likelihood that their product, that their space is gonna be abused for wrongful purposes. And that by providing people with a platform on which they can commit various kinds of serious wrongs and then doing nothing to reduce the likelihood that, that people do use the platform for that in that abusive way, you can become actually complicit in the wrongdoing um, that people then use your platform to cause. And that's why I think people who accuse Facebook of some kind of complicity with the crimes committed against the Rohingya have a deep philosophical point here. It isn't just that they failed to rescue them. It was that they were connected to the wrongdoing in a certain way by providing the space in which it occurs. And, and what do we do if these social media companies don't willingly take up their responsibilities, both of rescue and of avoiding complicity in these sorts of harms? Yeah, so I think these are these are pretty fundamental responsibilities. I mean, in the case of, of platforming the speech, sometimes the platforms don't just provide a space for it. Sometimes their algorithms actively amplify the speech. And that seems to be what's happening in a lot of conflict situations um, where really toxic speech gets amplified for the psychological reason that it's more engaging uh, and therefore the algorithms, the purpose of which are to increase the amount of time people spend on the platform so that there are more eyeballs, so that there are more advertising revenue um, means that more people see the speech. Now platforms are of course starting to recognize that and are doing work to, to limit that kind of speech um, even at the borderline if speech doesn't actually constitute a genuine violation, they're still trying to, to ramp it down. Um, I think that it's fully appropriate to hold platforms accountable in some way for this kind of speech. I think that dangers of giving state the state powers it might abuse militate against advocating for these kinds of policies in contexts where states are manifestly untrustworthy. So I wouldn't th argue that the, like, the Russian government should have more power to crack down on social media platforms. But I do think within, within stable democracies, um, it's completely plausible to argue that um, states have some responsibility for overseeing the content moderation process. And that's why I think the kinds of legislation like the online safety bill, or even though I quibble about plenty of the details, are broadly defensible in trying to subject these platforms to some kind of regulatory oversight. Not a tight um, kind of specification of you must remove exactly this kind of speech and we're gonna oversee every decision you make, but a broad, system that ensures that they're thinking through the harms that their that their content moderation systems can lead to when they're not operating effectively. So you're thinking in terms of the government fining social media companies if they let these things happen, as opposed to the government coming up with a list of all the things you mustn't permit to be published on your platform. Is that the kind of move? That's right. And one of my worries about the social media platforms, is, sorry, one of my worries about the online safety bill is it was envisaged at the start as this kind of systemic approach that required the companies to undertake these different risk assessments about the harms that their systems could lead to, agree with the regulator, in this case Ofcom, with a list of things that they were going to do in order to reduce those harms, and then they could be fined uh, if they failed to do to live up to their promises about what they said they were going to do. And I think that kind of system is more future-proof in, in the sense that the kinds of harms that arise will vary over time than a system that simply says, right, here are some existing speech categories that are already criminalized or that we are criminalizing, and your job is to take those off. Oh, and by the way, keep kids away from 
from various kinds of speech that isn't appropriate for them. I just don't think that that uh, is, is exactly the, the right approach here. Now, interestingly, over the past few weeks, um, there's been discussion about amending the online safety bill to call for prison time for executives uh, at these companies uh, if they fail to keep uh, children safe. And so here, we've heard horror stories about um, cases in which pe kids engaged in serious forms of self-harm after exposed to content prom promoting that kind of harm on, on social media. And you might ask, should we stop at fines or should we embrace these more demanding requirements? And my general thought on that is that there's no in principle reason why corporate executives should be um, immune from that level of responsibility. I think it creates huge incentives to make sure that this kind of illicit speech is, is off the platform. And I think that's broadly a good thing. Great. I wonder if we could turn briefly back to Twitter with which we began. So, so you've given us a kind of account of how to think about misinformation. You're pro the online safety bill. Where is it that you think that Twitter is falling short if it is at the moment? What is it about the Elon Musk reforms that make you uncomfortable? So Elon Musk has broadly endorsed the idea that First Amendment principles should be the governing principles on Twitter. Uh, and he hasn't exactly done this <laughs> because the First Amendment's ex and the First Amendment is the free speech provision of the of the U.S. Constitution. The First Amendment, uh, as it's been interpreted by the courts over hundreds of years, has various exceptions to free speech. So if you make what's called a true threat, where you threaten to to harm someone in a way that's credible or that they have reason to believe is is credible, um, that's unprotected. If you engage in inciting violence, where the incitement is likely um, to cause imminent harm, that's unprotected. And there's other categories too. And Twitter, even its current content rules under Musk go much further than the First Amendment in allowing for various restrictions on, on speech. But I think the, the basic insight that Musk has, which is that even when speech is seriously harmful, even when it's seriously dangerous, we might still have reasons to allow it on this space because that's what freedom of speech um, means. It means people it means people being allowed to say stuff, even when it's genuinely hurtful, even when it's genuinely harmful, because the, the standard we apply when we're restricting speech is just a way higher standard than the standard we apply when we're just restricting ordinary conduct. And that idea permeates a lot of liberal philosophy of free speech, uh, especially in the American legal tradition. And it's that broad framework that Elon buys into that I just don't buy into. So it's just unthinkable <laughs> to suggest in the context of traditional liberal American free speech arguments that dangerous misinformation, as I've defined it, as a whole category, falls outside the protection of free speech. Maybe there are specific instances that do, but as a category, it certainly doesn't. And so in advocating this, this view, I am starkly departing from the received orthodox liberal wisdom about the limits of free speech. And so my objections to Twitter content moderation policies are that they don't go far enough in tackling various forms of misinformation, in tackling various forms of, of hate, uh, and that the, platforms do, the platform does need to go back closer to the level it was before Elon Musk took over, I'm afraid. Thank you, Jeff, for that strident defense of better online content moderation on places like Twitter. We look forward to having you back on the podcast. Next week, we'll hopefully have space for a bit more optimism. We'll be looking at the role of praise in politics. Remember to make sure that you don't miss out on that or other future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics. All you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Google Podcasts, 
or whatever podcast provider you use. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could take a moment of time to rate or review us. I'm Emily McTernan. This episode was produced by Connor Kelly and Eleanor Kingwell-Banham. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening. Thank you.